following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. Here is our statement in our statement of faith about our eternal destination. We believe in the resurrection of the last and the lost, God's presence, and the lost will be sent into everlasting death, devoid of the presence of God. That is a very basic statement. There's a lot more that can be added to this. And part of what I want to do this morning is unpack some of these terms and talk about some of the implications of even this basic of a statement. So I want to note before we start off, I think our conception of heaven and hell can be skewed in a number of different ways. So a guy like me, I studied literature when I was in college. So I got to read Milton and his Paradise Lost and his Paradise Regained. Well, okay, in the sake of full disclosure, I read clips from those two. Um, enough when I read them. Okay, I'm familiar with the storyline. Um, Dante's um, epic version of hell where hell's like a cone and at the bottom is Satan encased in ice and all these levels of tortures that are appropriate to the crime, that has heavily influenced our version or our vision of hell. Modern movies like Constantine or a lot of different horror movies that project some vision of hell, that's what Hollywood is telling us that they think hell is like, not necessarily what the Bible is. If you grew up with Chick Tracks, Chick Tracks had a vision of hell that was kind of in line with Dante and frankly in some ways more in line with Hollywood than the Bible, but we'll get to some of those distinctions. We have some modern visions of heaven. Uh, if you've seen Robin Williams, What Dreams May Come, that's kind of an idea of what the afterlife might look like, but that's Hollywood's idea of what heaven looks like. And so we actually find that if we're not careful, a lot of things throughout history where people, many of them very well-meaning and followers of Jesus, many of them, have tried to create something to help us better understand the reality of both these places. What I want to try to do today is cut through a little bit of the fog and see which of those things are in line with the biblical vision of heaven and hell or the afterlife in general and help us kind of distinguish what we believe and what we mean and what ought to order our thoughts about this reality. So I'm going to address three points this morning. All of them build from our statement of faith. Number one, after physical death, our existence continues. Number two, we will wait for the final day of God's judgment in a state of either blessedness or despair. And then number three, after the final day of God's judgment, when God wraps up history as we know it, there will be a separation. All people will be consigned to an eternity fully absent the presence of God or raised in a glorified, incorruptible body to eternal life fully in the presence of God in a new heaven and new earth. And so now we get to unpack this. So point number one, after death, our conscious existence continues. Know something about how the Bible talks about this. The Bible uses something that we call progressive revelation. It simply means that over time, God progressively revealed to his prophets, to the writer of scripture, more and more information. Just like with Jesus, you see hints at Jesus all through the Old Testament, and then you see Jesus. It was preparing the way. So you're going to see discussion in the Bible of a lot of things, and this includes the subject of the afterlife, that is progressive. It's laying a foundation, and as God's revelation progresses, it kind of fleshes out what's going on. That's a practical example. When my boys were little and they'd say, where do babies come from? Uh, the first answer is mom. 
That was sufficient. And that was true, and it was sufficient. Then they got a little older. They're like, tell me again where babies come from. Uh, okay, mommy's belly. Okay, a little more information. Then they get a little older. They're like, yeah, but how did it get there? And then you're like, talk to your mom or something, right? So, so we progressively reveal things. And it doesn't mean that the first revelation was false. It simply means there was more to be said. So as we look at the idea in the afterlife in the Old Testament, understand this is the first stage of progression. There will be more to be said. Um, also note that God does a good job translating heavenly ideas into a way that we earthbound beings can understand. So you're going to see in this discussion that God is content to reveal something about the world to come to the biblical writers in a way that will make sense to us. So they're going to traffic in, in common language or common images, things that God says, okay, these can make my point sufficiently. So in the Old Testament, there's only one word which indicated an afterlife, and that word is, I believe it's pronounced Sheol, and I'll probably just say Sheol from here on out because I'll forget to say it correctly. So this is a Hebrew perspective, but it was also a perspective that the ancient Near East shared, that after this physical existence, there was a life to come. They generally called it Sheol, so the Epic of Gilgamesh, those of you who had to endure that, and which, once again, I read parts of, refers to this as a place of a, a house of dust and darkness. And you'll actually see later that Daniel refers to it as a place of dust as well. It's a realm for departed spirits. So to the Hebrews living at that time, this wasn't a torturous place, but it also wasn't heaven. It was in some ways a, maybe a neutral place. No one really looked forward to it that much, but there was a belief that there would be an existence that followed this one. And if you look at the chart on the, on the screen, you'll also see that the Hebrew people very much believed in a three-tiered kind of universe. There was three heavens. There's the atmosphere, there's outer space, then there's heaven as a place where God lives, and the underworld, or Sheol, is below the earth. And I point that out just to say, as you hear language in the Bible, or as we use language of going up or down, it goes back to this conception. So know that it's just a way of talking about where your destination will be. Um, be careful about applying some kind of geographical reality to it, like, oh, hell must be in the center of the earth. That's not the point of that kind of imagery. Just know it's separation. It's separation. So God sees Sheol as a sufficient word, an efficient concept to use in the Old Testament. And it's used 65 times, in fact. And depending on your translation, the Bible will call it hell, it will call it the grave, it will call it the pit. So in number 16, the rebellious sons of Korah went down alive into the realms of the dead after basically an earthquake. Jacob and Abraham, they planned to meet in this realm. God says he'll deliver his people, Israel, from Sheol. He says this multiple times. And, and in some ways, for the children of Israel in this life, they were looking forward to the land of Canaan where they could live at peace with God and with each other. That, that seems to be their hope of the next world was a place where they could live in community with each other and peaceful community and with God in some sense. Isaiah chapter 14, beginning in verse 9, Isaiah says this about the king of Babylon. The realm of the dead below is all astir to meet you. It arouses the spirits of the departed to greet you. All those who were kings over the nations will say, you have become weak as we are. You've become like us. 
How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. And then when Daniel receives a messenger from God, he notes, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Many scholars will note this is the first time in the Old Testament you begin to see the concept of maybe there's two different destinations. So once again, this is progressing. So as Daniel points out, you come up from the dust, the land of dust and shadows. And some will go to everlasting life, some will go to shame and everlasting contempt. Which brings us to point two. After we die, and now we're going to move into New Testament revelation. Our existence continues as we wait for the final day of God's judgment in a state of blessedness or despair. So in the New Testament now, new language, this place of despair is called Hades, and the state of blessedness is called paradise or Abraham's side. If you have King James, it's Abraham's bosom. So Hades now is a Greek term for the realm of the dead. They think, thought of it kind of as an eternal retirement. The dead were less substantial. They were less happy. They were still versions of themselves. And in Greek literature, you'll see Hades mean a variety of things. It can mean simply a grave or a tomb. When you're buried, you go to Hades because... You're in this area where your body is laid to rest. It could be the domain of the dead. It could be a place where spirits go. In some ways, it's very similar to the concept of Sheol. And once again, the biblical writers borrow this word to describe what happens after death. New Testament, you see it 11 times. It's a state of existence where those who are not saved or who are not followers of Christ wait until the end of history. A couple examples. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says to Peter, You're Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. In Acts 2.31, David foresaw and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. In fact, when we say the Apostles' Creed, that Jesus descended to hell, it's probably best understood as Jesus descended into Hades. In Revelation, death and Hades are linked together, and they're both judged and destroyed at the end of human history when they're both thrown into the lake of fire, and this lake of fire is a concept I'll talk about a little bit more later. So that's Hades. The other side is paradise, and the Greek word simply means a garden or a park. In some ways, think like Garden of Eden type of setting, and it's a parallel place to Hades, For those who have committed their lives to Jesus, they go there when they die, and now they are in the presence of Christ, and they experience blessedness already. Uh, The Jewish belief at that time, they thought it it wasn't in earth, they didn't think it was in heaven, but they knew the souls of the righteous people went there at death. We see this in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. So I'm going to read from Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side, paradise. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, where he was in torment, He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am agony in this fire. 
So note something. We see here paradise and Hades. They're not in the same place. There is some kind of chasm or gulf between us. It's far away. So these are separate destinations, and yet it's, it, it can't be like heaven or hell proper because they're still talking with each other. And that's not a concept that you see. So there's some state here where this reality is happening. I would note something, by the way, about the rich man. When we're introduced to the rich man and Lazarus, Lazarus is a beggar, and the rich man was the bully, for lack of a better term. And now we see them go to their just rewards, and you can see the rich man hasn't changed at all. He sees the other side, and he says, Father Abraham, make that servant go serve me again. And Abraham's like, yeah, that's not going to happen. I'm paraphrasing. So there's disagreement about whether this story is a real story or a parable. Uh, And I think while that conversation is interesting, the most important point is this, that after this life ends, Hades is not the only option. There's also paradise. And paradise offers blessing and goodness. And we see this other places. Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Well, Paul in 2 Corinthians talks about having a vision of the heavens. He's taken up into paradise for his vision. So when we die, our existence continues in the despair of Hades or the blessedness of paradise as we await the final day of judgment. Uh, Side note, quick side note. There's a lot of literature out there of people who who claim that they died and they went to visit heaven or hell. I don't think biblically they can at this point. I think biblically, if that's what's happening, they've either visited paradise or Hades. Um, We can talk in Message Plus about how much validity we ought to give those kinds of stories, but nonetheless, uh, we are at the point in history where Hades and paradise are where we go as we await final judgment. Point number three. After the final day of God's judgment, there will be a separation. Jesus refers to this as the sheep and the goats. All people will be consigned to eternal death, absent the presence of God, or raised in a glorified body to eternal life, fully in the presence of God. So, more terms. There is a place called Tartarus that is mentioned in the New Testament. To the Greeks, this is where the Titans went for eternal punishment. So the Titans to the Greeks were these rebellious gods. They tried to knock the gods off the perch. The god says, nope, they cast them into Tartarus. We only find this word one time in the New Testament, and that is in 2 Peter. And 2 Peter says that is where the fallen angels will go when history wraps up. In some ways, agreeing with the Greeks that These divine beings who rebelled against God, this is their punishment. It is not a punishment where we are told we are going. It is specifically for them. And in fact, you may have heard this before, that early Christians were called atheists. It's because early Christians did not believe that the gods of the Greek and Romans were gods at all. They thought they were demons, and uh, thus they were atheists because they denied the godhood of these beings that eventually go to Tartarus. The word you hear more often involving people is the word Gehenna, which is usually translated as hell. So this is one of the dilemmas of translating all these other languages into English, is that we have one word, 
hell. So hell's going to cover, when you read your Bible, it's going to cover all these different words that we're mentioning. So Gehenna is mentioned a lot, and it comes from a Hebrew word that means the valley of Hinnom. So there was a valley where at the time of Jesus, people did terrible things like sacrifice children to Molech. Over time, it became a place where rubbish was burned, and it's not clear if that was happening at the time of Jesus or if it developed like in the first and second century, but very quickly, the image became associated with the constant burning of refuse. So Gehenna is used to describe final everlasting judgment of the wicked in Matthew 25. Uh, it's a future punishing world. It's also referred to as a place of fire. In Matthew 7, you read it's also a place of destruction. There's a number of different words used there as well. Matthew 8 says it's a place of utter darkness and the weeping and gnashing of teeth. The weeping seems to have something to do with grief or regret. The gnashing of teeth seems to have to do with anger. Everywhere else you read that phrase in the New Testament, people are angry. So when Stephen was stoned, the religious leaders were gnashing their teeth in anger at Stephen, which is why they stoned him. So it seems to capture this idea. It is a place of deep grief and deep anger. It's also called a lake of fire, which may well be a reference to the Dead Sea of all places. The Dead Sea at the time of Jesus, there's historical records, was referred to multiple times as a lake of fire. That whole area was close to where Sodom and Gomorrah were. Apparently, there was something under the ground where there were often fires just popping up out of the ground around there. Not much grew there. There was no fresh water. Think the rich man who was in Hades who was begging for fresh water to Lazarus. Uh, sometimes uh, travelers recorded that out of the Dead Sea, there would be smoke and you would sometimes see fire underneath the surface. Early map makers, when they drew maps of the area, always had smoke above the Dead Sea. Now, we don't think of that now because the Dead Sea is not like that at all today. But at that time, it was literally referred to as the Lake of Fire. So Jesus and the biblical writers seem to be drawing from imagery, Gehenna. Everybody knew where that was. It was a bad place. People sacrificed children there. Okay, there's something about that that captures the, the hellish nature of the world to come without God. People at that time, um, Dead Sea, Lake of Fire, stories were told that it was such a polluted lake uh, that when lightning would strike it at times, the whole surface of the lake would go on fire. All right, so there's another analogy. The life to come without Christ is going to be something like that. So this is where this divine translation is taking place. Jesus is giving people images very clearly of places they disdained and hated and did not want to be there. He's saying, do you understand that a world to come apart from Christ, it, it's going to be something like this, or at least this gives you an idea of the kind of existence. Revelation and Matthew both call, call it the second death. Uh, where the soul suffers an everlasting death instead of everlasting life, and people disagree about what does that exactly mean. We just know you won't be raised to life, you'll be raised to death. C.S. Lewis summarizes it this way, and I like this summary. In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out past sins and at all costs, to give them a fresh start? smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help, but he has done so on Calvary. To forgive them, they will not be forgiven. 
to leave them alone, shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might? Alas, I'm afraid that is what he does. So I would summarize it this way. The Bible gives this separation, starting first in Hades and paradise, and then culminating ultimately in all the language of hell, and as we're going to look at in just a second, all the language of heaven. And we see this. To one is the fullness of death, to the other is fullness of life. To one, think of it as an exploration of all things unblessed. You get to explore the depravity of a world without Christ for eternity. The other side, you get to explore the depths of blessedness. On the one, you see an unfolding of destruction. On the other, you see an unfolding of restoration. In the one, you cannot escape the wages of your sin. In the other one, the wages of your sin have been paid for you. So I I don't quite know what all the implications are. Like I said, for the last 2,000 years, Christians have wrestled with trying to take a lot of language that is symbolic but representing a real kind of existence and asking, what does this specifically mean? And, and I don't know, and I feel like the Bible could, get, could have given us a lot more specifics if, if God had wanted to. I think it was sufficient. Jesus' audience got it. This is not a place you want to go. Imagine your worst case scenario. Now imagine moving deeper into that for eternity. And once again, that's figurative language that I'm using also. And we could talk more about this in Message Plus, like I said. Uh, I just know there will be sorrow, deep sorrow. That's the weeping. There will be anger, deep anger. That's the gnashing of teeth. Number four, Christians will be raised in a glorified body to eternal life, fully in the presence of God in the new heaven and the new earth. So Paul says in Romans 8, that there's something unique that Christians hope for, and that is the redemption of our bodies. And Paul supplies three analogies to make this point because at that time, even the Jewish people did not believe that our physical bodies would in some sense be resurrected and redeemed. They just assumed a purely spiritual future. And Paul says, oh no, that's not the case. We will have redeemed and glorified bodies. And in 1 Corinthians 15, three analogies. One, he says, look at a seed and then a full-grown plant. A seed is put into the ground. A seed is a particular kind of thing. It dies. When it comes up, it's different than the seed. It's the same life that continues, but now it's, it's a life of something new and something better. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 39, there's different kinds of flesh. And he said, just look around, different kinds of animals, fish, birds, whatever. I'm not really a meat expert other than bacon, but there's just different kinds of flesh. And Paul says, same thing's going to happen in the world to come. It's a new kind of body. It's a very physical body. If we see different kinds of flesh here, why wouldn't we think there wasn't a new kind of flesh in a new heaven, a new earth? And then he says, we'll have different kinds of bodies. This is verses 40 to 41. Just like celestial bodies in the universe are different, we'll receive a different kind of glory with the body that we're going to get. And he concludes, this is 1 Corinthians 15, once again, now in verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. And he says this, now listen, brothers and sisters, This present body is not able to inherit the kingdom of God any more than decay can inherit that which lasts forever. 
Stay close, because I'm going to tell you a mystery, something you may have trouble understanding. We will not all fall asleep in death, but we will all be transformed. It will happen fast, in a blink, a mere flutter of the eye. The last trumpet will call. Uh, think of that as simply the trumpet is announcing when something is going to happen. This is the last trumpet in human history. What's going to happen? God's going to wrap up history. The dead will be raised from the graves with a body that does not and cannot decay. All of us will be changed. We will step out of our mortal clothes and slide into immortal bodies, replacing everything that is subject to death with eternal life. And when we are all redressed with bodies that do not and cannot decay, when we put immortality over our mortal frames, then it will be as Scripture says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? So where will Christians go after paradise? Well, the New Testament uses a lot of different words, once again, to try to describe what life is going to be like. So first of all, the word doxa simply means infinite worth, renown, or glory. Romans 8.18 says what we suffer now is nothing compared to glory he will reveal to us later. The second one has to simply do with the sky or the dwelling place of God. When we pray, our Father who is in heaven, it's that word. The third one means simply being high or lofty or esteemed. When Jesus had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven in a place of lofty esteem. The fourth one has to do with simply a heavenly realm. Think of it as a place of spiritual activity. All praise to God, says Ephesians 1.3, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, because we are united with Christ. And then 2 Peter refers to it as an eternal kingdom. Then God will grant you a grand entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Remembering a hymn that I sang as a kid, uh, talking about the life to come, it will be joy unspeakable, full of glory, the half has never yet been told. Such a great song about heaven. This is the idea. You see here the biblical writers, right here's just five different ways they're trying to explain. Do you see what's coming? The, the glorious nature of this existence that God is preparing for us. But the Bible tells us more. We're told all of creation groans. We're also told that creation will be redeemed that we're not going to fly away somewhere else. God is coming to us. That's Revelation 21.3. There will be a new heaven and a new earth that will take place. And then once again, the biblical writers use a lot of different imagery to try to help us understand it. Number one, it's a peaceable kingdom. Predator and prey will get along. Children will be laughing and playing with formerly dangerous animals. It's a banquet, says Revelation which is just a symbol suggesting uh, fullness for one, but also fellowship. And la banquets were something you did to celebrate something. So this is going to be a celebratory life. It's a place where pavement is like transparent gold. In other words, if even your streets are made of gold, and it's a kind of gold that doesn't exist here because there is no transparent gold, like... There's a glory to this place that even the things we think of as the most amazing things possible will seem common in the world that's to come. It's a place where we receive crowns. 
which I think is a symbol of us finally reigning over creation as God intended. And by that, I mean being stewards of this good creation that he gave us. We're going to get a new wardrobe. Uh, We're cleansed from sin. So wardrobe change time. What we take, and this probably has to do with our bodies, what we would have to take to heaven otherwise is this corrupt, fallen, stained body. Nope, we get a new one. And it's a kingdom. And we're the children of the king, and so we're finally home. So once again, multiple words, multiple images as the biblical writers are pulling from the best of everything we can imagine and saying, do you understand this is just a glimpse of what Christ offers his children in the world to come? Here's the classic passage from John's vision in Revelation, and this is Revelation 21. I looked again and could hardly believe my eyes. Everything above me was new. Everything below me was new. Everything around me was new. Because the heaven and earth that had been passed away, and the sea, so the sea is chaos and evil. The sea was gone. Do you remember we talked about this last year, that in the Hebrew writing, the sea represent everything that was bad? Uh, That's okay if you don't remember. But don't envision this as a new heaven and new earth where there's no great bodies of water. This is a very Hebrew word of saying chaos, death, destruction, all of those things will not exist there. As opposed to an existence where there's a lake or a sea of fire. Yeah, okay. The sea was gone completely, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride on her wedding day, adorned for her husband and for his eyes only. And I heard a great voice coming from the throne. See, the home of God is with his people. He will live among them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them. The prophecies are fulfilled. He will wipe away every tear from their eye as opposed to weeping. There will be pain no more as opposed to gnashing of teeth, for the first things have gone away. And the one who sat on the throne announced his creation, see, I am making all things new. No one, nothing will labor under any curse any longer, reversal of the curse in the garden. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will sit prominently in the city, and God's servants will continually serve and worship him. They will be able to look upon his face, and his name will be written on their foreheads. Just an image stamped were his. Darkness will never again fall on this city. They will not require the light of a lamp or of the sun, because the Lord God will be their illumination, and by his light they will reign throughout the ages." And if theologians are correct, we'll serve and we will reign in a very physical sense. We get to steward the earth. Uh, I have some recommended resources. I don't know if you've read Randy Alcorn's book on heaven. It's a good one. But I am of the opinion, and this is Anthony offering an opinion here. Um, I'm stepping beyond the details of the text and trying to incorporate some big picture ideas. I think we'll explore God's new heaven and new earth for eternity. I think we'll create, I think we'll paint, I think we'll write, I think we'll sing, I think we'll laugh, I think we'll build things. We might have vocations, I don't know. But it's going to be a, a, an existence, not where we're just spirits like chubby cherubs sitting on a cloud strumming a harp. 
I think we're going to be experience the fullness of the presence of God for one. One day we will see him like he is and become as close to being like him as we possibly can. But I think God's also going to unfold the majesty of all that he had made once and it was fallen and now it's a new heaven and it's a new earth. Now experience what life is meant to be. And we'll be fully at peace. We talked a couple weeks ago about Garden of Eden and the idea of shalom, which is peace with God, peace with others, peace within, and peace with God's creation, that it broke at the fall at the new heaven and the new earth, shalom is restored. Now we understand what it means to genuinely be at peace with God, to live in full peace with others, to not have these places in our heart that are empty or longing or unfulfilled. All of those things are fully fulfilled. Shalom is restored. And our hopes are fulfilled and our hearts are no longer restless because they have found rest forever in Christ. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.